This episode was recorded on the traditional lands of the Gadigal and Mongol people of the Eora Nation and the Darug people of the Dark Nation. We acknowledge that sovereignty of these lands was never ceded and pay our respects to elders past and present. Uh-huh. Whoa. Oh, sorry. That was... <laughs> That scared the shit out of me. What the fuck was that? <laughs> that was Siri on my home. <laughs> uh-huh. Wow. She sounds super sexy. <laughs> so that's going in the episode, right? I think so. I think so. Hello, welcome to Trope Watchers, the show about pop culture and why it matters. I'm Scott. And I'm Mia, and we're culture scholars who think maybe Twilight is not the worst book written in the history of all time. We are joined today by special guest Grace Sharkey. Grace is a PhD candidate at the Department of Gender and Culture Studies at the University of Sydney. Grace, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Thanks, Scott. I just finished my PhD in gender culture studies a few months ago. Uh, it was about pornography uh, and feminist and sort of queer approaches to pornography and thinking about uh, things like the male gaze and feminist film theory. Uh, and I'm very glad that it's over. <laughs> and I'm excited today to talk about something that is not pornography, but is somehow in, in some ways pornography adjacent, I think. <laughs> so in today's episode, we'll be talking about young girls and the pop culture they attach to. Uh, with a particular focus on representations of sex and sexuality within it. Uh, There will likely be spoilers for all the Twilight books and films. And there's a note here, I don't know who put it in the spreadsheet, listeners, but it says here, but where have you been if you haven't seen him? Well, I haven't seen him, and this is why I'm the moderator of today's episode. So Grace, Mia, can you both describe your experiences with the Twilight franchise? So I feel like I've read the Twilight books when I was in... I want to say year 10 of high school. So when I was about 15, I think. Um, And they hadn't all come out yet. I think I remember going to the shops to buy perhaps the last one, I think. Uh, And lots of my friends at the same time were reading them. It was before the film had come out. And I was sort of there when the casting of the film began. And all all my friends would talk about who we thought should play Bella and things like that. And liking Twilight was a totally normal, totally kind of not necessarily cool thing to like, but it certainly wasn't something that was uncool. Mm. It was something that everybody shared. Everybody liked. Edward was so great. Even really cool girls liked him. Um, And it didn't come with any kind of like heavy attachment. It didn't come with any kind of, um, shame or anything like that which I think now it definitely does um and I think that happened because the films really helped the franchise take off in a new way and it's the reaction to the films that has sort of led it to be uh kind of where it sits in the cultural imaginary at the moment but we'll talk about that probably later on in the episode yeah so I I think my I guess journey with Twilight started pretty similarly uh when it first came out uh I probably read it like almost as soon as it came out in Australia which was just after it came out in the US uh and it still had like the old cover back then where it had like this girl this on girl it, on it. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> um and that was before all the cool like black and now also white covers with just like the apple and the, the, mm, <laughs> the flower yeah, totally. and the ribbon um so I was recommended so I, I had a group of friends who we all read um I would have been 14 at the time and we used to all share books with each other and 
it, it was pretty normal for my friends to be like, here, read this book. It's really great. But in this case, like they were like, no, you have to read this book. Uh, and then a few copies that we owned, like just got shared around so many girls at my school. I went to a co-ed school, but it was only really the girls that were sharing the book. I did. I had one friend who was a guy and I tried to get him to read it. And he took about two months and got through a few chapters and like the book got destroyed from him just leaving in his bed. So he did not like it. <laughs> but he also gave me a few books to read and I didn't like his ones either. So it's fine. And I remember at the time people who I never really considered myself to have the same reading tastes as were also falling in love with the book. People who I never thought of as sexual people, which is weird to think back and to think that as a 14 year old, I was I recognized that some of my peers were sexual and some of them mm. weren't at this stage because they were all kind of going through their own puberty journey, I guess. Uh, but girls who I, I thought kind of just weren't at that stage were like gushing over Edward <laughs> in a clearly very sexual way. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, I, I every book after that, or sorry, no, the next two books after that, I bought like the day they came out. I really didn't like the second one because Edward wasn't in it for most of it. And I really didn't like Jacob. Um, and by the time the fourth book came out, I'd, I reread the series for like the however many time and it didn't get me the same way it had. Uh, the, it's, I kind of noticed all the, like, you know, Stephanie, especially in the first book, Stephanie Meyer is not like this amazing poetic prose writer. So I was kind of noticing all this stuff that I didn't notice when I was younger. I probably for the first time in my life, I was understanding that books could be of different quality in terms of writing quality. Cause you don't really get that as a kid. You either like a book or totally. you don't. Um, and the movie was coming out around the same time and I was very excited for the movie because even though I was starting to fall out of love with the books, I was like, oh, but a movie, like, because it's such a simple book, it will translate really well to a movie. And then the movie wasn't what I expected it to be at all. And looking back, like now knowing that Catherine Hardwick was the director, it is exactly what I should have expected for the film, but it wasn't. And I didn't really enjoy it. And then the fourth book came out and that was also not what I expected. It was... (laughs) That is an interesting book, uh, which Scott's really not going to appreciate the full extent of this, but there is like, you know, bed breaking sex and pregnancy that's like monster child and like all this kind of stuff. And I, then after that, I went through the phase of like, uh, I'm not like the other girls. I don't like Twilight, which is like the the most awful phase for, mm. for any, mm-hmm. any teenage girl to go through. Like they are insufferable at that time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um and then I kind of came around to me and my mum and my brother would watch the series and like laugh at it. We'd like, so we'd get, not in a cruel way, but we'd get tr- like lollies and stuff like that. And we'd just like binge watch it and love it. And, but like kind of not hate watch it. People be like, this is the most ridiculous film and I love it. Uh, and we went in the cinema to watch the fourth movie together as a, as a family with our dad, but like as like a little family outing That's to watch horrible. the last Twilight film, the fifth one. And... Uh, now I still do like marathons with my friends who also want to laugh at it with me. And I'm kind of also now come around to the stage where like really starting to understand culturally, like the significance of Twilight and what it means as a reflection of how we mm. think about teenage girls in our society. Mm. So Twilight is often described as anti-feminist and sometimes even post-feminist. Grace, what are some of the key criticisms of the franchise in both academia and otherwise? So I think that the 
Twilight series probably doesn't get as much academic criticism as it does popular. Uh, Although there is definitely examples of this. Um, But I think broadly Twilight gets held up as this text or this franchise that teaches the teaches young girls the wrong things that teaches them things that they shouldn't be learning and there's a lot of anxiety about what girls can know about themselves and what girls should be seeing about themselves um and the kinds of images they are meant to attach to and that twilight is this like story that presents bella as this weak character and that weakness is something that women should not be invested in and that we have to sort of move beyond this and that's where this sort of post-feminist argument comes into it as well I think um and I I'm just not so convinced by a lot of these arguments I'm not so convinced by the arguments that say that Bella is weak or that she is being mistreated I think there are definitely key moments and we might talk about them where she is and there are definitely some things that go on that are a bit dodge but almost not hugely dissimilar to swaths of other films and tv and books that just involve women in them Mm. you know and actually there's lots of things about bella that i think are really powerful and really beautiful and that the book particularly the first book is just a beautiful piece of young adult fiction that just tells a story a a very normal i mean i just said normal and then was like well he does sparkle (laughs) which is not the most normal thing of all time and there are things about the book that are strange and weird but taking those out and most of those things are about vampire mythology her bizarre brand of vampire mythology but beyond that I feel like it's just a story about a girl who falls in love with a really really handsome guy and he just likes her back and that's kind of what the movie's about it's kind of what the book's about and I'm unsure as to why this is consistently held up as a sort of terrible feminist or anti-feminist image So why do you think Twilight in particular has been such a lightning rod for such criticism? So I think partly, as I said, that it was like, that it's like been such a huge thing for so many young girls. So it's gotten this um, massive place in our cultural imaginary where everybody knows Twilight. Everybody has an opinion about Twilight. People who haven't read the books or seen the movies have an opinion about Twilight. um, And you already know what you're going to get before you even see it. Um, So it's really easy to make assumptions about it. Um, so I think that's one of the reasons that it gets a lightning rod and just the sort of mass hysteria about the franchise, which means that people are constantly worried about what these young girls are doing and what they're thinking about and what they're feeling about. And, um, but I think that there are also moments in the book and moments in the franchise as a whole that very clearly invite a kind of anti-feminist criticism, even though I think they can be dissipated or sort of put into context they're certainly there so there's a moment for example um actually so i think that the moment that people get most frustrated by bella is in the second book where and the second film where edward leaves and she's depressed for months and months and months because edward has gone and in the book actually you turn the pages and it just says how each month has passed So it's really clear how long she's been kind of almost this undead person walking through the world because she's so depressed that her um, love object has disappeared. And lots of people were like, oh, well, she can't just fall apart over a man like that. That's just not what love is like. You know, that shouldn't she shouldn't be able to should be able to pick herself up and be strong and be a tough, powerful, independent woman. And I just think 
nah. <laughs> I just think, why isn't she allowed to be really unhappy that the love of her life left? And this fear that we have about women not being strong and that women have to always be tough and powerful in these very specific kinds of ways, often ways that I would consider to be masculine. Um, and that her opening herself up to love and investing in love and then losing that love is in some ways a really strong thing to do. And being vulnerable in certain kinds of ways is really strong. And I think a really important site for sort of feminist uh, identification. But people, yeah, people hated it. And it was a meme because Kristen Stewart is apparently really, you know, sullen and doesn't smile on red carpets. And so her sitting in a chair looking depressed, a similar chair that I'm sitting in right now, <laughs> looking depressed for months on end because her shiny boyfriend left her means that lots of people thought that was a bit much. Um, as someone who has sat in a chair very sad for months because her boyfriend left her, I really identified with it and I resented <laughs> the idea that, um, you know, that was the only way, that, that doing something like that isn't strong or feeling those sorts of things isn't strong. And there are other moments too. So I actually think the worst, the sort of the low point of the entire series in terms of its sort of feminist uh, mode is in the third film... Um, I can't actually remember it happening in the book, although I'm sure it does. But there's a moment, a moment in the third film, Eclipse, where the whole premise of the third film is that a love triangle between um, Bella, Edward and Jacob is really coming to a head. So the love triangle, which has always been present, is really starting to become like a viable option. And so in order to make Jacob a more attractive object they have to make edward seem more shit <laughs> can i say that yes. okay <laughs> and so because at the at, up, up until now he's been this perfect perfect literally perfect man and so why would she ever consider dating somebody who's not him so one of the ways they do this is this moment that only lasts a few moments but it's pretty horrifying is that uh so bella's on her way to visit jacob at the reservation uh, certainly a lot of very bizarre race politics in Twilight that is perhaps a st story for another podcast. <laughs> um, but Bella's on her way there. Edward confronts her and says, I don't want you to go. You know, it's not safe. And Bella realizes that Edward has broken her car so that she can't leave, which to me is obviously that's that's horrible. That's bad. <laughs> That's huge red flags. That really, I'm the first person to be able to put aside my feminist criticism for the enjoyment of pop culture. Mm -hmm. But even that is a that's little. That's our whole thing. That's, that's the premise of our podcast. Yeah, of course, of course. And I'm really good at it. But <laughs> even that is a little too far for me. Mm -hmm. Even that's a little too far. Don't break your girlfriend's car so that she can't leave to see her, your, your rival. Mm -hmm. That's dark. Um, yeah, so I think that there are certainly aspects of Twilight that don't necessarily pass a kind of um, feminist test, but I don't think lots of texts do. And in some ways I think it passes in lots of other really more important ways. And so I'm simultaneously sort of convinced and unconvinced by those criticisms. Yeah. So what I find really interesting about Twilight is like it it's a buildings roman like it's this is not this is not a new type of book by any means there's a this is the kind of book that's been written for a few hundred years now um and 
there's already the element of it's a building's Roman about a woman growing up, which is, and also like, you know, the, I guess the twist is also deciding not to, to grow older, mm-hmm. which kind of adds this extra layer, I guess, to it. Um, so there's, there's that, uh, I think a big thing about like a big criticism I see all the time is that Bella doesn't have a personality. Mm. She's just this kind of blank slate. And a lot of people talk about how she's the reason that it's so popular is that she's this blank slate that you can just insert yourself into. And that's why so many readers identify with her. It's not because she's particularly interesting or anything. It's because there is no personality that they need to be like, well, I wouldn't do that, so therefore, mm. or I wouldn't think that, so therefore, this isn't me, and I'm no longer identifying, and that's kind of put forward as a bad thing a lot of the time, which I don't really understand. Like, I, I'm not gonna argue whether or not this was a really intentional thing on my part. I wouldn't know, mm. but why is that not a skillful thing for a writer to have created a character that every reader or many, many readers mm. can just imagine themselves? put that in there and then they can live the story like that is that's kind of what you want in a romance in particular Mm. and any kind of coming of age story as well you want to be able to feel like you're living through the character and I think also in addition to like your kind of summary that it's a story about a girl who falls in love with this beautiful man and he loves her back I think that's part of it I think the other thing which is I think a lot of feminist criticisms overlook or kind of just mention quickly and then don't really put much attention on and a lot of other criticisms actually are sourced from is in many ways this is a book about a girl who wants to have sex Mm. like that is Mm -hmm. such a big part of the story she doesn't get to have sex until the fourth book and that's when she's married and yeah there's issues with that but she is constantly Mm. asserting her will her desire Mm. to have sex with her boyfriend throughout this whole thing yeah it's a it's gross that it's a 112 year old man or whatever, whatever the case is, but like, whatever, it's not like it's this is an hard. original story. Like <laughs> this has been done so many times. Mm. Twilight is not the only story putting forward, like mm. a really old vampire who looks like a hot teen in connection. Mm. There's a bit of a mythologization around Maya's writing. Mm. So she was, I don't know if she's like this anymore. I feel like, I mean, I'm not is in this community anymore, so I, she might be, but I also feel like the, the backlash she gets probably has made her step back a little bit. But in the early days, she was very much a part of her community. She had her website. Mm. She would talk about, like, she'd have these kind of diary entries almost where she talks about a dream that she used to have. Mm. And the dream is in the first book, there's this image of Edward in a meadow and he's sparkling. Cause that's what he does. Mm-hmm. And she talks about, she kept having this dream and then eventually she wrote it down. And then it kind of, I feel like she was kind of talking about the dream progressing from there. So she kind of, this happens maybe two thirds of the way into the book. So from this story, she essentially wrote from the, the last third and then went back to the beginning and wrote the beginning. Whether that's actually how it happens, I don't know. Like, I feel like there's probably a little bit of revisionism to make it into a better story. That's what, I mean, certainly what's what a writer would do, but it's what also anyone would do. But I remember like when I was starting to hate on Twilight as a teenager, I was like, what a crap way to write. Like that's not a legitimate way to write. You haven't planned out your story, which of course is ridiculous. People write in different ways. Some people plan out, some people don't. And there are plenty of amazing books in history that have not been planned. They've just been written. Uh, So there's that element. But then there's also, and I think this is something that really kind of like annoyed me in the past and now... 
I'm like, as if I wouldn't have done the same thing, <laughs> is when her f- book first got optioned, mm. she was really excited about it because you should be really excited. Your book has been optioned. That's amazing. Um, and on her website, she would put up pictures of the actors and actresses or whatever that mm-hmm. she wanted I to play. This. Yeah, I remember this. So not only did <laughs> Stephanie Meyer put these photos on her website, I, and this is like a little story about how I learned HTML, I was, my MySpace page was built up like almost from scratch. Like I used to use Dreamweaver to design my MySpace pages and I would put pictures photoshopped because I liked photoshopping of these actors to look like the characters that I wanted them to play. Like I was full of, so this is like, this is the hypocrisy of like me a few years later being like, oh, how childish that she put these photos. Oh, how childish of me to then take those photos and make them into my MySpace page. Who cares? You love it. Like, like if you love something and like as the creator of that franchise, of course she's going to have these attachments. Of course, like if you write anything, you imagine what someone looks like in the easiest way to imagine for many people is to be like, well, who's a real person? Who's a celebrity? Mm. I wanted to add, something that you mentioned this idea about the idea that Bella is just this mushroom that takes on the flavor of everyone who reads her you know that she's this has no personality and there are lots of things about her that are definitely something that tether her to the world you know but also I think it's interesting that if she had been more quirky she would have she would get the criticism of being a manic pixie dream girl Mm. and it's so interesting that the only way that popular feminism can handle its female characters is they're strong badass butt-kicking people or they're a Mary Sue who has no personality Mm. and it's just like a vacuum for the male gaze or they're a manic pixie dream girl who is also a vacuum for the male gaze she's just more present and these criticisms constantly come back to this idea that women have to be all women that Mm. all women have to represent every kind of woman and it's the burden of proof is always placed on women to do those sorts of things in film um, and and in literature and Bella Swan gets such a huge amount of that. And I think that's... Yeah, it's also funny because in addition to wanting to have sex with Edward, she wants to become a vampire as well. He doesn't want her to, but mm. she wants to. So she's also trying to make herself powerful as well. Like this is totally. a girl who's trying to be the powerful being that I'm sure would get uh, looked on a bit more favorably. Mm. So it's... Yeah, totally. And she spends, and I think going back to what you were saying, she spends the whole series desperately trying to have sex with Edward, and he is so hesitant because it, you know, it's going to ruin her soul because the book has extremely intense religious undertones <laughs> that come from Maya's own life. Uh, is she a, a Mormon? I think so. Yeah, um, it's a really horny book for a Mormon to have written. Just saying, but <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's just a desperately sexual novel mm-hmm. all of them are but even the first one in which you know no one definitely has sex it's just the most seductive erotic novel and that's why all of those teen girls became obsessed with it because not only is it this really erotic text it also doesn't go too far it's still a safe um foray into those kinds of things and i don't know what in at least in the kind of feminism that I practice, what could be in some ways more feminist than a girl who's just constantly begging her boyfriend to have sex with her? <laughs> That's great. Good for you, you know? Um, and the idea that Edward is so withholding is this really classic kind of, you know, patriarchal, no, you can only have what you, I'm, I'm going to tell you, you can have. <laughs> so there's a really great moment in, I think, the first half of the fourth film uh, 
where Bella is very clear to Edward why she wants to become a vampire. And she says, it's not just because I want to be with you, but that this is just who I'm meant to be. And I want to become who I'm meant to be. And I, I, my whole life, I never felt like I was right. And now I realize that this is because this is who I am meant to be. And I mean, that's, that's what all these, all these feminist criticism that's flown at her is about. And yet the text itself is showing you that's not what's happening. Um, and I think that the feminist criticism and like the sort of larger pop cultural criticism that it's not a good text, that it's not a good franchise is often misguided. If you just watched it, you would see that actually it's a camp masterpiece. Uh, we can maybe talk more about that though. <laughs> okay. So what alternate readings can you both offer? I think that thinking about it is this like, so if you watch all the films back to back, which I have done more than once, <laughs> in fact, I did it quite recently to prepare for this episode. It's just an incredible journey watching, you know, as Mia, you've talked about this quite beautiful, I think, Catherine Hardwick film that is sort of, it's very stunning, stunning visually. It's got this great soundtrack, mm. um, lots of really beautiful shots of the sort of um, Washington Forest Street. I don't know anything about where actually the film is set, um, but it looks beautiful. It's really, I think, really well done in lots of ways. And then the films start to become, they turn from sort of indie romance where Edward is this like deeply strange character. And I think Robin Patterson's talk about how he sort of played him as this really weird <laughs> guy who's just kind of creepy, which you can definitely see in the films. But then Bella having a baby and her back breaking and Edward having to literally chew the baby out of her in this absolutely horrifying, really classic kind of horror film moment that it, it you just can't even... Um, like, it's just a, an amazing ramp up from where the first film starts and where we end up. Um, but I think even then it's... I don't, I don't... I think the first film stands alone as a pretty good film. There's lots of things about it. It's pretty good. The rest of them are not good, but, but they're oh amazing. Boy, are they fantastic. <laughs> they are just oh my god, I love them so much. Particularly both the Breaking Dawn films. I think they are just excellent. The whole film where she just she's there on the honeymoon and she's just like constantly, oh, I'm gonna make some eggs, and she cooks fried chicken for breakfast. Who cooks fried chicken for breakfast? Mad people. Suddenly she's pregnant. Can this really happen? It's just an incredible journey to go on with them, and I love it. And then I'm having to figure out, like, okay, how do we make Kristen Stewart more beautiful to show that she's now a vampire? And they're like, uh, eyelash extensions, oh I guess. It's impossible. She's already. The most we'll give her a bit of blowout. Woman in the world. <laughs> I know. Like, we've got this. Like, I mean, I know there's this kind of joke about, like, throughout the whole thing, her friends like, you don't realize how beautiful you are, Bella. Blah, blah, blah. So clearly, she's supposed to be, and this feeds into a lot of the Mary Sue criticism. She's supposed to be much more attractive than what she thinks she is. Mm. But then also, you're looking at Kristen Stewart, and you're like, how are they going to do this? How are they going to make her like from this to hot vampire and like kind of honor the mythology of? when you become a vampire, you get ridiculously hot. Mm. Like, cause there's just not going to be a very big difference. No, they just make her slightly paler. She wears a bodycon dress now where she would not, you know, converses are gone. She she's, looks great. she's in the heels. <laughs> she's in the heels. Pops instead of converses is what a vampire <laughs> is. Um, but what they should have done was make her look like she is now in the media where she has 
short dyed peroxide hair and she just wears Converse all the time and she's a super mm. hot dyke. That's what would have made me think she had leveled up into vampiredom. Um, but I am perhaps biased. <laughs> yeah, I think what's also interesting about the fourth film is you've got the whole like abortion discussion. Mm. I'm like, that's an interesting thing to be like, this is a teen film aimed at teen girls and they're like debating abortion. And I actually was reading uh, like a you know, peer-reviewed academic article that was talking all about how um, it was kind of saying that it was implying that it was um, anti-choice because of the fact that she wants to keep the baby. But I'm like, well, no, it's pro-choice because Edward wants her to get rid of that baby. And she's like, no, this is my body and my baby and I do what I want with it. (laughs) The whole idea of being pro-choice is to say, well, I do whatever the hell I want with my body. And I know that like, a lot of the argument there is that the baby is killing her. But, like, ultimately, even though we can kind of sit on the outside and be like, you're making the wrong choice. Like, choose yourself over this child. Like, it's still her choice to make. She really? can still do that. And I think the fact that you've got these people like Edward who is saying, no, get rid of the baby. And she's resisting that. Mm-hmm. And she's resisting that still as a human. Mm-hmm. She's resisting her vampire boyfriend, who she's always deferred to in every kind of way, except mm-hmm. for like the odd thing, especially when Jacob's involved or if it means like her staying behind and him going. But like, usually if if he's going to be with her and he says, do this, she'll be like, okay, like we'll do that. Now she's like, no, I'm, I'm doing what I want to totally. do. Yeah. Screw you. I want to keep the baby and you can't stop me. Um, yeah, I think it's pushing it to call that an anti-choice kind of theme. And the fact that you're getting an abortion discussion in a teen film is still, it's still an interesting thing. You totally. don't get it very often. And I also think that the film doesn't necessarily position her making the choice to to not have the baby as like a terrible, unethical choice. Mm. Do you know what I mean? I think it's very clear that it's the mythology of the film that really we know that's why Bella should have the baby because yeah. obviously this baby is an actual miracle. All babies are miracles. This baby is actually a miracle because her boyfriend <laughs> is dead. Um, and that she has some kind of, you know, paranormal connection to the child and those sorts of things. So it's not as if, but it's not as if everybody just thinks Edward's evil, mm. you know, that his, his sort of wish that this not happen is very much in the interest of her safety. Yeah. That scene is the logical thing to do. We're supposed yeah. to kind of be on board with him, Yeah, but be like, but I also want to see what kind of cool vampire totally. human baby is totally. born. And that's exactly. clearly the movie. Um, I guess my other reading, which I think is definitely a canonical reading as soon as I say this, <laughs> is that um, the Cullens are like this great swinger family. Totally. Like they're just, I mean, it's a house with a bunch of, even though they look like teenagers, adult couples all living together. Yeah, that's a swinger family. Obviously, and they're, like, trying to get this other, like, final person to complete their, like, quartet of couples. Totally. (laughs) They all just want to have sex with each other. I don't understand how they even have sex because they can all hear each other constantly. Yeah, well, that's the whole cabin in the woods thing. Yeah, but then what what are Esme and Carlisle doing? Yeah, And also that there's this great love triangle between Jacob and Edward and Bella. And then... That Jacob falls in love with the baby. And so, like, 25 minutes earlier in the film, he was in love with Bella. And suddenly now he's just like, oh, forget Bella. I'm in love with your baby. It's the just the weirdest the film ever. And it's oh, so great. You know? It. It's, what an amazing <laughs> chosen family. Just a house full of vampires were all coupled off, plus a vampire. I mean, plus a werewolf, who apparently the, everyone thinks stinks, because werewolves smell, apparently. Plus... 
this tiny child who he's literally imprinted on. Yeah, he's is, just waiting for her to grow up. Waiting to, for her to grow up so to... he can have sex with her. It's just so strange. But I love it. I love it. I think it's great. Okay. <laughs> All right. So what about the fan engagements? Um, how might we read fan engagements with Twilight as more than simply characterizing Bella as a quotation marks bad role model I think I've touched on this already but I think that having lots of young girls really invested in a book that is so wrapped up in sexuality is I think really great particularly a kind of sexuality that is perhaps not as explicit as something else might be that's kind of like it lets them experience feelings and lets them approach these kinds of ideas in a kind of uh, kind of beginner's level way. Um, I think it's a really seductive story. I think it's a story about um, in lots of ways, which may not be the best things we want to teach young girls, but also kind of just uh, waiting for a guy who is nice to you and treats you right. And not just, which is, you know, girls can do whatever the hell they want with their bodies, but also there's something kind of nice about that story that I do kind of wish lots of girls would um, kind of, like take something from not necessarily that you should save yourself or things like that but that you know boys have got to actually like you and be nice to you i think for you, for you to give them your time mm. for you to give them your vulnerability is maybe <laughs> what i would say um like it, it really is like a kind of intro to horniness totally <laughs> totally and like okay so let you know if we compare it to the fanfic that is mm. 50 shades of gray mm-hmm. and i've got a lot more problems with 50 shades of gray than i do with twilight but that is not this podcast mm-hmm. um but i think one thing both series are great for no matter what problems they have is you know in twilight you've got these young girls who are like being open about their horniness essentially mm. and same with you know in the stereotypical like middle-aged moms in the case totally. of Shades of Grey. Yeah, it's a great comparison people being like yeah we are sexual creatures we are people who often we're told we're not supposed to be sexual and they're being able to express that sexuality mm. through these books that's super important the other thing to remember about Twilight, like i cannot even count the amount of people i've heard say i never finished a book until twilight totally. and now they they are big readers and i'm like okay you are seriously limited in how much criticism you can give to a book if it makes you know conservatively thousands of people around the world decide they want to be readers and they want to get into books because even if you just think of it as a gateway that maybe could be better but it's not and that's like that's what we get and like I mean let's be honest it's like I said in the intro it is not even close to the worst book I've read so many what like I wouldn't characterize the Twilight series as good books but compared to some other books I've read they are like fantastic totally (laughs) the first one it's just a really normal like it's well paced yeah it's 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 pretty like it's pretty average who is harry styles (laughs) (laughs) i have no idea what this segment is can we please put that in the episode (laughs) (laughs) oh my god that's so funny (laughs) you'll find out you'll find out He's the handsomest man alive. That's who he is. <laughs> I'm going to Google this. Okay. So, Grace, how would you describe your relationship with Harry Styles? Um, <laughs> not as intimate as I would like, perhaps, is probably what I would say. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It's interesting. So, I should obviously start off by saying that I'm definitely not a 
the biggest Harry Styles fan in the world. Like, and I say this not as a criticism of him, but as somebody who's not a One Directioner, I didn't care, ever care about One Direction. I don't know everything about him. I'm not one of those fans only because I don't want to um, pretend like I am and then say something wrong. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and all offend, of our One Direction all listeners. Of the One Direction listeners. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But recently, <laughs> recently, I've been really, really fascinated by him for lots of reasons. And one of the reasons is sort of why I felt like he was a good connection to Twilight is that he's sort of beloved by young girls in the same way, in the same way that One Direction was. And that both One Direction and Twilight, and we can think of other examples, I'm sure, are things that have garnered huge amounts of sort of white girl love that are therefore kind of condemned or sort of dismissed because of the kinds of hysteria that surround them by young girls. The young girl is the worst consumer, even though she's obviously the most, in what, at least one of the most sort of lucrative consumers. Mm. She's also the most easily dismissed. I think one of the reasons that he is given to those kinds of attachments is that he's safe in ways that Twilight is also safe in the sense that Edward is constantly um, stopping Bella from making a rash decision with her virginity <laughs> um, that Harry Styles rides this line of being a kind of bad boy who's got tattoos and, um, you know, seeing songs about uh, having sex with women. Oh my God. <laughs> um, but that also he's just this nice guy who you can tell quite likes his mum. He's sort of British in this quite sort of safe way. <laughs> he's not a cockney, <laughs> you know, he's got a nice accent. He used to work in a bakery. He used to be on the TV and he used to be adorable, but now he's kind of also blossomed and now he's a man, but he still also used to be a boy, you know? Yeah. So I think that my relation to him is somebody who is just one of the many, many queer women who are in love with him. And I think it's so interesting that he invites this like queer female gaze and I'm not sure why, but I definitely, definitely see it. Well, he's, he's got a bit of a soft bush aesthetic. <laughs> he does definitely have a bit of a soft bush aesthetic, but I think it's more than that. I mean, I guess, and I guess also when he was in his One Direction days, he looked like a big girl. <laughs> he's got that curly hair and that baby face, but now he definitely doesn't. But he's still so seductive in lots of ways. And he's wearing these like cute suits. He's just this really sexual kind of figure. And all the people I'm friends with on Facebook who love One Direction are all like hardcore lesbians. <laughs> and it's always like, but Harry Styles is the one man I'd marry. Okay. So I've, I've got a, a theory about that actually. Mm-hmm. The same Cause I, I'm not a One Direction fan, but I'm trying to like say this in a way that I'm like, I do not want to put down One Direction fans no, at all. Obviously like that's thing. the whole point of this. Uh, but I, I don't actually, I don't think I know any of their songs. Yes, you and do. N- I probably would, but I wouldn't be able to say that's One Direction. Yeah, like, sure. I just feel like, that's a song I've heard play somewhere. Yeah. Uh, and Harry Styles does his own music, right? He does, okay. yes. <laughs> so, yeah, I could not tell you what he does. <laughs> I'll play uh, some for you later. We won't get together. But, rides. like, I know the name. If you say Harry Styles, I can picture him in my head. So, like, mm. that's already, like, for someone who has no interest in the music like that's already saying something the fact that i'm like yeah i know who you're talking about yeah totally because i i quite often people talk about contemporary celebrities are like who who is that so i think someone has already like kind of transcended the norm by having me picture them in my head when names mentioned but i guess my theory would be in terms of queerness um it's almost like 
you have permission as a queer woman to love him because you will not attract the same kind of disparaging Mm. that young heterosexual women have if they're like. So if you are the typical teenage girl in love with Harry Styles, that's that's lowbrow. Like, we don't want to be associated with that. We don't want to, like, young women, whatever. (laughs) But, like oh you're a lesbian who likes it like you've got a little bit more permission it's a little bit more like subversive yeah yeah Yeah. so I think you know (laughs) it's they've all got their own kind of way to touch them in different kind of social and cultural ways but it it gives you permission to love someone without being seen as that girl totally and I think also one of the things that really fascinates me about Harry Styles is that he was sort of inviting this queer gaze and then he's really lent into it Mm. So you often see him hold up pride flags at his shows, his sort of joint on his solo tour, um, really, really frequently. It's really, really common to see him do it. And for example, I think recently a girl put up a sign that said, I'm going to come out to my mum because of you. And he very sweetly was like, well, what's your mum's name? And told all the crowd to get quiet and sort of said into the microphone, Tina, your daughter is gay. And everybody was so excited and it was the, it broke my tiny teenage gay heart. And there's constant kind of queer imagery surrounding him. And now he's sort of come out with this new song that hasn't been released yet where he sort of talks about sleeping with men, uh, which is just thrilling for the fans and me including. And I think that there's something really interesting about um, the sort of swaths of fan fiction that's always been written about One Direction and the sort of shipping of them as male um, as, as male characters, they're real people. Um, sometimes <laughs> it's confusing. Uh, and the sort of um, masses of straight girls who are really seduced by the idea of two men mm. kissing. Yeah, I find this interesting as well because, like, I mean, we all know that, like, slash fiction is such a huge thing, and slash fiction is almost always, like, boy, boy. Like, always, it's like, yeah. oh, because it's so, like, it's so dangerous and different, and, you know, all mm. that kind of emotional attachment that you get as a teen girl who probably hasn't been able to explore these kind of things as much as as other people would have but I mean I've always been deeply uncomfortable with slash fiction about real people really wow <laughs> find different it, people yeah so I mean I find <laughs> I love looking at the kinds of things that people like I think it from like I find it very amusing and again not amusing in a condescending way but just like genuine like I get genuine entertainment and like this is amazing that people's minds come up with this stuff about slash fiction with fictional characters but as soon as it's a real person and you get like people do photoshopped images on DeviantArt I I feel incredibly uncomfortable because all I mean I guess I'm just imagining these real people seeing this and be like oh or like or reading it but it sounds like with someone like Harry Styles he probably does not everyone would not everyone would and I, I don't I've never read any, and I'm not saying this to cover my own tracks, I generally haven't read any One Direction or Harry Styles fan fiction, although maybe I should. But <laughs> when I was a teenager, it was Panic at the Disco. Right, yeah. That was the, or it was My Chemical Romance. These mm. were the types of fan fiction that my friends and I read. And I think that it's so interesting that, I mean, if I was going to make a guess about why also lots of young girls are invested in sort of stories of real life people falling in love with their bandmates or things like that is because those kinds of stories build into them a certain kind of tension they build in the shame of um of coming out the the sort of um intensity that comes with not being sure and questioning your sexuality and sort of it's a really easy story to build with um 
and also uh, I'm very interested in, in the deep, deep eroticism of a lot of the ways that these girls attach both to things like Twilight and to things like um, people like Harry Styles. Well, this is what I find interesting as well about fan fiction because it's never been something I've gotten into and it's actually been something I've always wanted to get into mm. and just the few times I've tried to read it probably weren't the best examples that I mm. came across. Um, hilarious examples, mm. but not, you know, good entryways into fan fiction. Um, I think, I don't know if this is, it probably, I mean, Fifty Shades Grey tells me it isn't, um, but it feels like a lot of the time when I see fan fiction, it's, I mean, you know, I'm sorry, I'm going to bring up your porn scholarship here, but That's it's kind of like porn in that, like, it doesn't allow because you want to get you the good stuff like mm. you, there's no people don't rent a porn film like even like mm. the full-on like you know mm-hmm. feature-length porn films that were being made in like the 80s and stuff even with those you you don't want to like build have 40 minutes plus of build-up mm. even though really the payoff would be much better <laughs> if you did and yeah. i think fan fiction is a similar kind of thing so you'll be like you'll a lot of the stories i've seen there's, I mean, and again, I'm saying this knowing that Fifty Shades didn't do this when it started as fan fiction. So obviously that means a lot of other fan mm. fiction doesn't do it. But I feel like the majority of fan fiction is someone like, I really wanted these two people to have sex. So I'm going to write a story where it happens. And it's like two pages in, they have sex. Mm, totally. I, that's one of the things about it that I think is really seductive is that it is so you can build and build and build and then they can have sex and then they can go and do other things and then there can be tension and they can have sex again. And it's like just the way that they're not held down to the same kind of literary tropes that quote unquote real fiction has to Mm. be indebted to, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that is what it's really interesting when you get these stories that are not erotica, but they have elements of that. Mm. So I'm thinking about like, you know, the Suggy Stackhouse mysteries where like you get these descriptive, it's, there's not much, but you get the odd descriptive sex scene where you're like, oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I think like there's, you you don't get a um, I mean, you do and you don't. I feel like most fiction, like the more descriptive the sex is, the more you're kind of condemning your book to be, lower brow more likely to be pulp like you're kind of just restricting it from being on a particular shelf because you describe the sex a little bit too much and now it's no longer classy fiction (laughs) totally and linda williams who's a really famous porn scholar she talks about this that that any kind of genre that attracts the body whether that's a weepy or um a horror film anything that creates a sort of uh, bodily reaction, a sort of gut reaction, is a genre that will be um, sort of dismissed. Mm. Grace, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your insights. It's been really interesting unpacking the Twilight series, Harry Styles, (laughs) and various aspects of the fandom of both with you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. You can find Grace on Twitter. The handle will be included in the show notes. If you're a fan of trope watchers, check out our sister podcast, A Clash of Critics, your scholarly podcast about Game of Thrones and A Song of Ice and Fire. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find our podcast. You can find this episode and all future episodes on iTunes and Stitcher. Also check out our website, www.tropewatchers.com, for all episodes, extra content, or to download an RSS feed. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash tropewatchers. And you can tweet at us or follow us on Instagram at tropewatchers. You can also email us at tropewatchers at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Scott. 
and I'm Mia and we are your trip watchers. Thank you.